0: Yo, how's it going? It's Hal in Philly, and welcome to my podcast, Tales of the Road Warriors. Today we're uh, doing part two of my conversation with Steve Shacklin, so stick around for it. I think you're going to be blown away. In the meantime, before you do anything else, I want you to go to talesoftheroadwarriors.com slash subscribe. Fill out that little form, give me your email address and your name, and I can add you to the list and let you know when more great stuff is coming up because I guarantee more great stuff is coming up. In part one of my conversation with Steve Shacklin, we talked about Steve's Texas roots, growing up gay as the son of a Baptist minister, and finding his place as a musician, singer-songwriter, and eventually landing the role of West Coast Director of the National Academy of Songwriters in Los Angeles, California. Later, after being diagnosed with AIDS, He turned his prestigious position over to his protege, Brett Perkins, and pretty much resigned himself to die as a result of being HIV positive in the 80s with no cure in sight. In part two, Steve talks about his miraculous recovery and then goes on to write his internet diary, Living in the Bonus Round, which today would be called a blog, and then his award-winning, long-running off-Broadway play, The Last Session, Later, he learned how to compose and write a mass under the tutelage of Mark Janus. He talks about playing John Lennon's Imagine Piano, and then he shares a secret to attaining true success in life. This was one of the most, if not the most, compelling conversations I have ever had the pleasure to have with anyone outside, inside or on. Ten! Forget what we called it. And you contacted me about trying out this new show that you had been working on.
1: Yes, after in 1995, after I had been in the hospital in a horrendous case of pneumonia that took me forever, it wasted all my muscles down to my bones. I looked like a concentration camp survivor. And when I got out of the hospital that year, It took me, uh, that was in 94, it took me a year to where I could start walking normally again, and even sitting up at the piano. And I began writing songs about the experience of living with AIDS. And the writing of the music started to make me stronger. And I'll never forget, there was a day, the first day that I sat up at the piano after this year. I started playing and playing and playing, and I think I played all day long, just, big churchy chords and leaning my head against the wood of the piano and just playing. And the next day when I woke up, I felt a measurable difference in my physical strength. Like if I had thought to myself that I was like 65%, the next day I was at 90% after playing that music. It was a huge leap. And I thought, wow. Wow. All of that just came from playing music. It's not a wives' tale right. that music is great for your body. It really, actually, has a measurable effect. So that's when I began writing songs about the experience of living vapes, and Jimmy was giving me ideas uh, for songs, and I wrote the whole score in about three months. I think, like from from October to the beginning of December, two months. And I, that's probably, and then Jimmy wrote a book around those songs, and that became the last session, and then we were out, and so I was playing the songs anywhere I could. I was like an evangelist for for music, Yeah. and that was probably about the time that I contacted you or you contacted me about that. Gig, and now I have almost no memory of it.
0: The healing power of music. No, you called me. You called me out of the blue. I was like, Steve Shacklin's called me? What? Why, why would Steve Shacklin want to talk to me? And you, and you told me you had written this this show, and uh, you, well, what's the Patsy story? I know you've told it a million times, but people who know me out here have no idea. What.
1: Well, it was the night I went into the hospital with this pneumocystis pneumonia, the terrible pneumonia I was just telling you about. uh, Jim took me into the emergency room. I could barely stand up. And uh, they put me on a gurney and I'm lying there in the emergency room. I can barely breathe. I feel like I'm at death's door at that moment. And I looked up and through the doorway comes Patsy, Anson Williams from the TV show, Happy Days. And, it was such an unreal experience, and I looked up at him, and he came over, and he said he could tell that I was just miserable, and he came up to the bed, and he said, what's you know, what's wrong with you? Up to that point, I had not said the word AIDS out loud. I'd said, you know, i HIV positive. I used all these little slippy words, and finally, I looked at him and just went, I have AIDS, and I screamed it out loud. So he said, oh, wow. Tim tells a story. Dishes crashed. You know, you could. <laughs> <laughs> dishes crashed. You know, people fell, things banged. But I just I yelled it out loud, and um, he took my hand, and he said, "You know, I, I have to tell you, I this is not going to be the end for you. I I really believe that something, you know, something you're you're going to survive this, and you're going to do some great things in your life." Now, I don't know, maybe that's just something you say to somebody who's sick, but I took those words in. That's
0: pretty prolific.
1: It's just what I needed to hear. And uh, we make a joke in our show where I say, I I decided to live that day because I didn't want the last celebrity I ever saw in my life to be Potsy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I love that story.
1: Well, after last session, uh, after we did, you know, I did my little gigs at Rusty Surf Ranch, and I was playing these songs all over Los Angeles. And we did a workshop, and the workshop, that was the same time, this, was, this would be 1996, in March, I started an online blog detailing my symptoms, because I was starting to fail again. The writing of the songs sort of picked me up and kept me alive for, for, for 1995. Right. But that could only last so long, the virus was starting to take over, and I was starting to die. And I knew I was dying. So I started keeping this online diary called Living in the Bonus. Now it's called Living in the Bonus Round. Back then it was called the Steve Shacklin Survival Site. And I was just detailing all of my symptoms. And we got, uh, we managed to get a little workshop together in Los Angeles to do the last session there on, um, at Melrose Avenue. And about a week before we started, the uh, new AIDS drug came in the mail. It was on compassionate use there were only so many slots available because you had to take it because it was so new they didn't have enough manufacturing facilities. And they had a nationwide lottery, and my name got picked in the lottery, and I started taking the drug. It's funny, my recollection of it was that it was like, you know, the door opens and the golden light comes in and the new drug comes in. And, and But I went back and looked at my diary entries back then, and I remember my actual – response to it was, oh, great, another stupid drug.
0: (laughs) And this was like a clinical trial?
1: It was just past a clinical trial. They had released it, what they call compassionate use. They hadn't finished the trials, but in the second round, the drug was so effective, they thought, and AIDS activists had a a lot to do with this too, is that they just started to release the drug, saying, well, look, it's bringing people back to life. If it's got side effects, they'll kill them. You know, either die or have side effects, you know, take your pick. Yeah. So they were giving the drug out um, to a select number of people who were at the end stages, who they knew were going to be, they, they were already feeding me through tubes, through my veins. They only expected me to live for just a few weeks longer. Unbelievable. And I started taking the drug and I mean, the effect of it was almost overnight. I started gaining weight within like a week or two. And uh, right then is when we started rehearsals for the last session, the workshop, and I started my own show for three weeks. We did that down on Melrose Avenue. And at the end of the run, the little wire or the little tube that was connecting my feeding tube that would go into my bloodstream and feed me at night had crimped, and I was starting to actually have, my digestive system had started working again. I had a diarrhea for like three years. And the diarrhea stopped. I was taking in food. And on that night, when we took our final bows of our final performance, I took the bandage off my arm and I said to the audience, I said, it looks like I'm gonna live.
0: Wow. That's
1: amazing. It was an extraordinary night
0: and what year was this 9 96?
1: this would be 1996 in July it's all documented on my online diary so then came so then came the next big uh, event which was okay now i'm going to live what do i do next <laughs> you know <laughs> The, writing the diary, writing the, the the musical was like my last big blowout. Look, I've done I've done my life's work. I've written a musical. it's the songs are really fantastic, and they were the songs were great. And I thought I have reached the pinnacle, and I'm going to go out like a, you know, like a fireworks in the sky. Except that I didn't die, and, and it was like waking up and going, okay, now what do I do?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anticlimax. Let's go find Potsy and tell him you made it.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, what happened is a year later, we were in New York and last session was off Broadway and we ran for nine months. And that turned into uh, me taking the songs out of the context of the show. And I, and I got an agent that, and I started to tour colleges and universities and high schools doing age education concerts. Wow. So I became a performing artist.
0: Which you are still today, no?
1: Which I still am today. I, I, I don't. Yeah, I guess I sort of am. I fell a couple of years ago and I broke my arm, and I'm still in the middle of trying to get my arm back.
0: Oh, that's because right. I had a yeah.
1: shoulder replacement and it didn't work, and they had to do it all over again. So I'm, I'm a little bit. <laughs> you, <laughs> what did you and Brad say that I'm accident prone? Accident prone.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, and this cuz this all happened shortly after you started playing the guitar. You you were keyboard all your life and then you decided I've been a gonna...
1: piano player all my life, yeah. Yeah, and
0: then you decided I'm going to play guitar and as soon as you start playing guitar, you, there goes the shoulder.
1: I tell you.
0: You're still play, guitar have you still playing you able to play it at all? What's that? Have you been playing guitar at all lately?
1: I have. Oh, I cool. have for the past year now, or for the past six months or so, I've gotten back and started playing again. I'm still a piano player who plays guitar. I'm not great at it.
0: Have you written any and, songs on the guitar? Did you, like try Oh, just...
1: I've written a number of songs on guitar. I love writing songs. It's a completely different experience. When I write on the piano, I usually write lyrics, and then I fit music to, write to, to the lyrics. When I'm playing guitar, I've come up with a rhythm, and I start singing along, and the song comes out of the rhythm.
0: So now so you know. Totally
1: di- and now I know, and it's a lot more fun. <laughs> it's a lot more fun. I've always been a, a jealous uh jealous of guitar players.
0: Well now and, you don't have to be. You I didn't one.
1: realize how easy it was. <laughs> <coughs>
0: I know. I'm looking over my notes, I was wondering if I skipped anything. I see Jan J A N S but that was way back. In New York well, City. we were
1: living in Los Angeles uh, after um, after last session. I mean, the, the New York production played out here, and we were still living in L.A. And I was going around and doing all those concerts, and then Jimmy uh, wrote another play for himself where he played um, the character of Zero Mostel, and we took it to New York. And it was such a hit out here that we decided to move. Now I came into the exact same place I was when I first hit L.A., I came to New York and I didn't know anybody. And I, th- I thought, now, where do I start? Because it's like starting over, right? And I thought, well, I'd love to learn, since I've started this career in theater, I wasn't a theater major in, in In uh, I didn't go to conservatory. Most of my music education was from two years of Baptist College and just being on the road. I could read music. I couldn't write it down very well. And I wanted to.
0: When you moved back to New York, was it easier for you to get kind of get back into it than it was initially when you went to L.A.? I would think New York would be easier to get back into your groove than it was.
1: Well, what I did was I decided um, to to to, to follow my own advice. The same thing that I did in L.A. is we uh, here in New York there was a a fellow named Mark Janice, who Jimmy had worked with on a musical, so he was my friend. And he teaches at Manhattan School of Music he conducted for Leonard Bernstein. He's a great arranger and musician, like a monster, monster musician, the type that I'm not. And so I called him up in the first week we're here, and I said, Mark, I would love to learn choral arranging and more advanced forms of composition. How about if I come over and clean your toilets and what, and sweep your floors? If I, if I can be of use to you, and then I can just watch you work. If I could just learn from you. He's a really great guy. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, my place is too small. That's dumb. I don't want you cleaning my toilets. He said, but look, I have a church choir. And uh, it's in Brooklyn. And the church choir consists of a lot of my vocal students from Manhattan School of Music, which are opera singers, musical theater singers, all legit, legit advanced musician, songwriters who can read music like crazy and can, not songwriters but singers. And he said if you want to I can always use another voice in the in the uh, choir. So I showed up the following Sunday and I said just put me in the back row in the tenor and I'll be happy to just sing along and learn. And he said no. <laughs> he said I- I can't have you just doing that. You're, you're, a, you're an, you're a songwriter of note. You've had two hit musicals on in New York. Why don't you sing a solo and teach the choir, the song and I'll, I'll feature you in the service. Wow! And this is an Episcopal church. So it's not like the Baptist church. It's a much different layout. So I sang a song. I got the choir to sing along with me and I showed up the next Sunday and he, he made me do it again. So I did another song. And the next thing you know, I'm choral arranging for the choir, and I'm writing. And eventually, I became, I gave myself a title of of uh, composer in residence.
0: <laughs> I like that.
1: Because <laughs> I thought, I'm, I'm volunteering, titles are great, um, <laughs> uh, and the church totally went along with it. So I became composer in residence, and I thought, well, I know how to teach myself how to uh, compose. I'm gonna. I'm gonna write a mass. Oh. I'm gonna compose a mass. Now, I didn't actually know what was in a mass, so I had to look it up on Google.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Search for mass,
1: <laughs> and I found out there's five. There's five movements to a mass, and they all have the same words. I mean, each movement has has a set set of lyrics. So it's a exercise in music composition, and I had written a bunch of single songs for the service that were more like gospel songs that we've been using over the past couple of years. So I merged the two. I wrote these very heavy choral arrangements to go for the Mass, and I interspersed the songs that I've been writing over the last several years and composed a full Mass, and we performed it and recorded it.
0: Well, when was this?
1: This was just a few years ago. Yeah,
0: that's what I thought. It was recent. Yes. So, so, so well, I guess I should bring us up to date then. Bring us up to date. So, what's going on with you? I know you just came back from a, a cruise with uh, Jim.
1: Yeah, Jim uh, works on uh, cruise ships, and I get to, to tag along. What I'm doing now is there, there's a, a songwriter group out here called the Jack Hardy Songwriter Group. Uh huh. They've been around forever since Jack Hardy, he was a, con, uh, a, a folk singer. He passed away, but he was a really great songwriter. And every week, he had a group of songwriters, and everybody has to bring a brand new song every week. And you play it for the group.
0: You, you bring you get the lyric critique. sheets in?
1: You write the lyrics and the music, you sing it, and then they, you get a critique from the group. Right. I love and, those. Uh, I just
0: went to one recently for, with NSAI out here in Philly. recently. Oh, Sure.
1: But Suzanne Vega has been through here. Michelle Shocked is in the group. Wow! There's some r- really, really songwriters of great note who who are who drift in and out of the group. That has been my focus ever since uh, for the past few years now because of my arm, and and uh, but also for the for the past ten years that we've been here, I've been going faithfully.
0: So you've been writing, bringing a new song in every week to to the Jack Party uh, Group.
1: Yep, I bring a good new song in every week, and it makes you, boy, it makes you really write. You know, and a lot of them really suck, and that's okay, because it means you can get the bad ones out along with the good ones. Sure. And, everyone, and then I make demos, and I've set up a little home recording studio here in the house. Uh, also, since uh, since the last session, I wrote a song cycle along with my uh, mass. I also wrote a song cycle called New World Waking, and this brings the John Lennon story around full circle. A friend of mine named Gabby, who lives out in Olympia, Washington, her son, a bisexual teenager, had committed suicide after a gay bashing. And she wrote about it and I put it on my blog and I I helped her write up this story. It was was an amazing story about her survival as a mother and taking that story into schools. Well, George Michael, the pop star, had bought John Lennon's "Imagine" piano as a mem- rock memorabilia, the the this the blonde Steinway upright that he wrote, yeah, uh, "Imagine" on, and he was touring it around the United States to places with a camera crew, to places where acts of violence had occurred. So they took it to Ford's Theater, they took it to Memphis, Doctor right in front of the hotel where Dr. Martin Luther King was was assassinated uh and to columbine and george michael's husband had his name is kenny he had an art gallery in dallas and he read the story about gabby's son now i was in houston and i get a phone call from my friend gabby and she says now imagine getting this phone call <laughs> i see hey. George Michael wants to know if you'll fly up to Olympia, Washington and play John Lennon's Imagine Piano.
0: Who?
1: And I said, what? (laughs) Because I didn't know any of this that was going on. George Michael wants you to fly up to Olympia, Washington and play John Lennon's Imagine Piano. I said, who? This is a prank. Somebody's pranking you. Because she got pranked a lot from, from homophobes and bigots. I said, I said, this can't be true. It's absolutely, there's no way that this is true. And she said, Well, I got the phone call. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll believe it. What happened is they called her. They wanted to bring it. And she told them, No, only if Steve Shacklin, if you'll fly Steve Shacklin up to play it. Because <laughs> I have to oh. write her story out. Wow. Can you imagine telling telling them no, only if my friend from, you know, if you'll fly my friend who they don't have any idea who he is across country to play the piano. So anyway, they said yes. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll believe it when the, when the plane ticket comes in. Damn. So the plane tickets arrived. I flew up there. And I'll tell you, I had a transcendent moment. They pulled up the big truck. They hauled out the piano. They put it in the front yard underneath the tree. And I sit down at that piano and over on the right-hand side, just on the side of the keyboard where the wood is, there was a cigarette burn, like a groove. Yeah. And I thought, that's John Lennon's cigarette groove.
0: <laughs> John Lennon's cigarette groove. <laughs> wow. John
1: Lennon's cigarette groove, right there. Wow. So I've always, whenever I write a song on a piano... The sound of that particular instrument that I'm playing at that moment always influences the notes that I play to write that song. Because I always look for the sweetest part of that piano, and that's where the song gets written. So I thought, I wonder what Imagine is going to sound like on the actual piano where he wrote it on, because you know he found the best place in the piano to write that song. Because his sound probably inspired him. Right. Well, the moment I started playing that little figure, da 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 yeah. da 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 da, da, da. So, as I started playing that piano, I felt it. It was, it was perfect, perfect sonority. Unbelievable.
0: That had to give you some of, chills, like the hair is with your arms, like that's why you're playing and standing up, like static. It
1: did that It did that, and even more. I looked around because Gabby had invited all of Bill's, her son's friends, and family members, and there were about 20 of us. They were in a circle around the piano. The camera crew was there. And I, I had been playing a few other songs because I had written a song about Gabby and about her son, and I played that, played a few other songs. The minute I started to play Imagine, I looked up and every, I could see everyone's shoulders relax. Everyone just kind of went into this zen place. And as a songwriter, I thought, what would it feel like to write a song of perfect peace? Uh-huh. What would it feel like to write a song... That has an immediate effect on everyone from the first notes to just make everyone go, ah, that's what Imagine does. And that's what gave me the spark to write a song cycle called New World Waking, which is a song cycle about a search for a song of perfect peace. And we did it uh, several years later with a full orchestra and 200 voice choir in San Francisco for the San Francisco Gaming's Chorus and the community orchestra. And then I took that and I pared it down so that I could do it with a cast of 13 as a musical theater piece, and we did it in New York. And all that's on YouTube. It's called New World Waking. I I think I want to just say one last thing. And this is to aspiring songwriters, aspiring composers, aspiring singers. Everything I've gotten in my life, from learning about the business, from learning about choral arranging, from writing, has been because I put myself out there in service to somebody else. I found out where I wanted to go, and I volunteered my time. And every time I did that, placing myself in the place where I wanted to be, that's how I learned everything. And that's where all my success came from. It doesn't come from sitting at home. It comes from putting yourself out there. And I, I love saying to be of service to someone, just like I volunteered to, you know, clean Mark Janis's toilets. I didn't do that, but I did help him in his choir. And at NAS, when I got there, I didn't know anything about the business, but I volunteered at the front desk.
0: That's uh remarkable advice you know one of the best songwriters that ever lived wrote you got to serve somebody and so that brings new meaning to that or it uh it highlights the meaning of that and it
1: works when you give it comes back to you because you can't help but learn when you put yourself at service to somebody else who you want to learn from you will learn and it will put you in the place that you need to be. So now I have two off-Broadway musicals that have gotten great reviews, and and uh, I have got awards at the yin Yang, and but I didn't go to I didn't go to musical theater school. I didn't. I wasn't a music major in that sense. But I've achieved all of these things through sheer effort, volunteering, and learning. And I I just really believe that anyone can do it if they really just Get out of their bedrooms and go out and find and look and search and put yourself in service.
0: Well, you've inspired me. So hopefully you've just inspired as many people as I can possibly reach with this podcast.
1: I am very happy to have been uh, invited, even though Brett Perkins was on there. But I guess (laughs) I guess some things. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad I got a chance to talk to you both because I think that the two of you are just uh, have both made some great contributions to the world of songwriting and, and to the world at large.
1: I'm very really proud of Brett. You know, he's he's made a great career for himself in Europe, and he leads songwriters and he helps develop new songwriters and he gives them chances of workshops all over the world. It's really a remarkable career that he's carved out for himself, and so I really. I joke about him because I love him so much, and and I can do that. But you know, God bless him, and God bless Bob Malone. When Bob Malone came into National Academy of Songwriters, he came in on the first day and he played music for me, and I thought, well, he's pretty good. And uh, but the first thing I said to him was, "Hey, stop wearing mall clothes." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Get a costume, get some get some clothes on your back, and go out there and be an artist." And uh, we, we've laughed about that ever since. And now he's touring with, with John Fogerty, who is my songwriting hero of all time. And I got to meet him at the National Academy of Songwriters event after I was sick. And I came back uh, after I wrote the last session. I got to shake his hand. I was in the audience, and I got to shake his hand and just tell him how much he meant to me and how what an inspiration he was to me when I was sick. So, wow. I, I, you know, it's a remarkable life. I feel comes, like that I've been living and am still living. It
0: Comes full circle, and, and yeah, and you're, yeah, you're still doing it. It's the st- the story is not over yet, and uh, we're just gonna keep looking for new great things from you.
1: I gotta come in, Dave. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, keep on keeping on. Thank you so much for talking to me, Steve. This was this was like a hoot. I'm I'm ecstatic.
1: Thank you, now. I appreciate it very much. Keep it going. I'm gone. Okay, bye-bye.
0: Thank you, Steve Shacklin, for that enlightening and terrific conversation. I hope uh, you enjoyed that. Remember, go to TalesOfTheRoadWarriors.com/slash subscribe and uh, leave your email address so you can be up to date. Just go to talesoftheroadwarriors.com. You can leave comments right there on the home page, or click on Steve Shacklin Part 2 and go to the show notes page where there's also uh, not only a comments box but also transcripts of the entire show. You know someone who's hard of hearing or deaf and they have to read it. You can read it word for word what we just talked about. That's about it. I'm going to get my car and I'm going for a drive.